Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So welcome to the future. Welcome to 2017. You have 10 days left if you're listening to this on publication day, January 4th, for the Big Change Program. Doors close irrevocably on the 14th. You have 10 days to find out more about it. You can go to bigchangeprogram.com and do a test drive. You can send me an email, hj at plantyourself.com and ask me questions. If you want 2017 to be the year that you want it to be, and you do, check it out. This might be the very thing. So speaking of the future, today's guest is Hal Hirschfield. He's a UCLA psychology professor, and he has done some of the most interesting studies on the connection between how we think about the future and what we do right now. Not to give too much away, but basically we have a part of our brain that thinks about us, that thinks about ourselves. And it turns out it's a different part of the brain than the one that thinks about other people. And here's the cool bit. For most of us, when we think about ourselves in the future, we're using the other folks part of the brain. So we actually think of ourselves in the future as a stranger. And like, seriously, who the hell wants to do random nice things for a stranger when it's going to cause us pain? Who's going to save for retirement for some stranger and not get the things we want to get now? Who's going to go running in the cold of January just so that some stranger can look good and be fit and happy and healthy? And, and who among us is going to say no to the eclairs and the donuts and the holiday binging just so some future self can get into their genes? The good news is we get to change our brains if we want to, and we get to do things that will help us view our future selves as less strangers and more like us. And when we do that, all of a sudden, all those things that we do that are uncomfortable now but will bear great rewards later become easier to do, more automatic, and almost like default behaviors. So I heard Hal on my friend Peter Bregman's podcast where he was talking about ways in which we can use the future self-concept to become better leaders. And today I talked with Hal about how we can use that future self-concept to keep our vows to ourselves, to live healthy today so that we can be healthy and happy tomorrow. So without further ado, Hal Hirschfield, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I 
discovered you through uh, your appearance on Peter Bregman's Bregman Leadership podcast. And as I, as I as I wrote to you in sort of giddy excitement after, you know, I, I, I listen to podcasts while I run. So I so like I, you know six miles out, I'm like, remember to call Hal. Remember to reach out. To and I'm I, impressed that you made it six miles through the podcast. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I I double and triple up, but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, I can it's funny, like, I don't know if you ever listened to like something on the radio that's a repeat. and You can remember exactly where you were when you heard it the first time. Yes. Um, yes. So as I run, I can remember like the uh, the mind blowing points, you know, of, of the that you made during during that interview. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I, what, what I need is a running secretary. To- <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, <laughs> So, so before I mean, before we get into um, the the topic itself, I'm I'm really curious, like how you, what's your journey, how you came to be interested in, you know, the things you're interested in, which includes psychology, marketing, neuroscience, all that. Like, what what was your journey? That's a great question. Um, so actually, um, it's been a while since I sort of thought about my journey, but I, I guess I can I can say that my um, my, my folks are both clinical psychologists, and so you can imagine I tried to do everything I could to, to not go into a psychology field. <laughs> but, it, it you know, and then uh, I, I was very interested in political science, and I was adamant about taking that my freshman year of college, and I signed up for it. But I, I'm also not, not great with administrative tasks, and I um, signed up for a section that was uh, conflicting with my other requirements. And this was back when there was no computer to sign up for things. And so I was in the room and there, the, the person in front of me had pen and paper and she said, well, the only thing that's open for you is social psychology. So I said, All right, I guess I'm taking that. Uh. Uh, and so that, that kind of put me down a journey of really getting interested in understanding how people think about and interact with the world and with others. And, um, you know, from there, I uh, happened to be home for winter break and came across a American psychologist journal that my parents had and Laura Carstensen had an amazing article in there called taking time seriously. And it was all about, um, the emotional and motivational changes that happen when we, uh, have different time horizons in our life. When we think that we have a lot of time left versus not a lot of time left. And I, as a college sophomore, I reached out to her and we sort of had a correspondence. And then I ended up going to graduate school with her. And, um, you know, this is a, a person who's very interested in, you know, understanding the psychology of time preferences, but with an eye towards policy decisions and changes. And at some point in graduate school, she said, you know, we, we've got to talk about retirement. <laughs> and I thought, what a weird thing for me to think about as like a 24 year old, you know, and um and I, I realized in, in reading the literature and talking to her that so many of these decisions around retirement have to do with the way that we that we think about time and the way that we think about ourselves. And then and then what got really interesting is that you know we sort of collectively realized this isn't just about retirement. You know that's one example. This is about all of these decisions that rely on self control and and having temptations now versus, you know, knowing what you should do in the future. And so it applies to health, it applies to eating, it applies to ethical decision-making, it applies to environmental decisions, you know, all of these things sort of have these trade-offs between 
the now and 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 future me. Uh, so that that was kind of that was kind of my my journey in a nutshell. And then, you know, I I tried to be kind of open minded as to where my path would take me. And I the work I was doing sort of ended up being. I think, you know, sort of most relevant to other business school academics rather than psychology uh, academics. And so while I have a foot in both worlds now, I, I I'm housed in a business school and I love it. It gives me contacts to the, you know, to companies and the outside world and to entrepreneurial business students who really go on to do some some very cool things in the world. So that, that's that's where that's how I got to where I am. <laughs> cool. So I'm curious, are, 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 do your parents um, find your stuff useful in their clinical practices? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm an only child, so they find everything I do useful. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, uh, to some extent, you know, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question because I never made the link <coughs> to, you know, clinical issues. But, you know, because I, I don't see clinical patients, but my, my wife's also a clinical psychologist. So, um <laughs> You know, in talking to them, you realize um, a lot. You know, people have issues around these these decisions that involve these trade-offs between now and later, and it's it's not just sort of financial and health, et cetera, but it's also other things like um, you know it, it plays into their mental health as well. And so I, I think it comes up for them, although um, they don't they don't often talk to me about the, <laughs> the specifics. All right. Well, so so let's. Let's get into a little bit yeah. about. Um, so you 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 were fascinated by this idea of time horizons, yeah. And how did you arrive at your own particular topic about sort of future self? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, so <coughs> you know, I I had just been reading. I, I sort of done what uh, what they say you should do, <laughs> which is to you know dig into the literature, which I find. I find the notion of being able to sit and read for a while so so uh, you know idealistic now. It seems to like the time time is too too frenzied to do that. But but back when I was a graduate student, I was able to do that. And I I came across a great article by a guy named Shane Frederick. He's uh, uh, he's now a professor at Yale uh, in their business school, and he had sort of reviewed a lot of the different literature streams on how people make trade-offs between now and later. And he, he, he had read this philosopher named Derek Parfit, um, who put out some really provocative ideas in the seventies and eighties that are, I think still being digested. This guy is one of the most influential living philosophers. And, you know, that reading that led me to, to read that work. And then that led me to read other work. And so, um, kind of took up this idea that I thought was very interesting of, of thinking about how people think about themselves over time as a way of looking at these long-term decisions and how to understand where people go wrong and how to understand how to make them better. So, so the basic idea of, yeah. of the research is that, uh, at least you know, the way you described it in the podcast and in, in your, yeah. your TEDx talk, is that something like our brains, I guess, like when we're little bitty infants, one of our first tasks is to figure out us from not us. Oh, uh, yeah. that Yes. Yeah, so that's right. So so basically, I mean, so the basic idea and that, that's a piece of it. And um, well, I'll, I'll step back even a step further, if that's OK. I mean, the, the, sure. the basic idea is 
trying to understand um, basically, you know, why it is that we might say that we'll, you know, that we'll run more, eat healthier, save more money, et cetera, but then we don't do it. And, um, you know, part of the answer to that comes from the fact that we're always faced with these temptations in the present that make it really hard to say no to things right now. They're more colorful and interesting and emotionally evocative. And then, you know, in the future, it's going to be, well, I'll take care of it then. I think that's kind of the thought that a lot of us have. Um, and so the basic idea that underlies a lot of my work and my students' work is this sense that that the self um, takes on many different flavors over time. And so we've got our our current self, and then, you know, we have some future self that will be privy to the decisions that we make now. Um, but in many ways, we might feel sort of emotionally disconnected from that future self. Um, we might feel, and this is really just a kind of a metaphor, but we might feel like that future self um, is almost another person and another person whom we, you know, maybe we care about, maybe we don't care about, but we're, we're maybe not paying attention to their interests in the way that we possibly should. Um, and so, so that was kind of our, our starting point there. Now the, the, the neuroscience stuff that you bring up, that was, um, you know, some research that we had done where, where we were saying, well, you know, we know that the, the brain can essentially categorize what's me and what's not me. Um, and our suggestion was, well, you know, if the future self to some extent is seen like it's not me, like it's another person, um, maybe we'll see a similar sort of uh, pattern of, of, of brain activity when people think about themselves in the future, uh, you know, in the same way as they think about other people now. And, um, and, and that was, you know, I'm glossing over the, a lot of the details here and I can certainly send the, the academic papers out, but you know, the, 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 the gist is that across the board from our research participants, um, on average, you know, the, the neural activity that, that was sort of evoked by thinking about the future self was very similar to the neural activity that was evoked to thinking about, um, another person. Right. And I guess the reason I, I, I started with that, I sort of jumped yeah. the gun a little bit. Is, no. So, I, you know, um, true confessions, I've been flirting for the past week and a half with, mm -hmm. with uh, evolutionary psychology, mm. which, mm -hmm. which I mm -hmm. both love and loathe. <laughs> yep, I and understand. I, yeah. And I think I love it because it's so interesting and it tells such a good story. And you, t you'll, you look at a behavior and you can yep. say, well, you know, if you were, you know, why was that useful in Stone Age time? But, but it, you know, one, I mean, one of my critiques is that it, it's really deterministic. Like the brain has these modules, you know, the same way you'd, you'd put software into a computer and like, you know, this one does word processing and that one does, you know, evaluating your mate, you know, breast size and, and, and all of these things. Yep. Yep. But, but like what, what I wanted to, to bring out is like one of the key functions of the brain, you know, it's not like I have a part of the brain that's devoted to figuring out how far my mouth should be from the microphone, but I do have a part of my brain that's dedicated to helping the infant figure out me from the rest of the world, right? 
Yeah, and you know, I think so. Just to back up, you know, I, I share some of your exact same feelings. You know, I think that there's a lot of theory and empirical work in evolutionary psychology that's that's provocative and interesting. You know, the the difficulty is that, it, as you said, it's it's kind of it's you know it's reductionist and it's um de- well it's also determinist, right? And it's it's uh, it's hard to falsify to some extent. But you know, I think there's ideas there that are interesting now. We never went so far as to say, you know, growing up, uh, you know, the, the 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 brain needs to distinguish between what's me and what's not me. And now I think, um, and you know, at the risk of sort of speculating too much, because I, I I frankly am not an expert in the evolutionary psych literature. Um, you know, I, I I'm 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 guessing that there's somebody out there who would say that that that's not a a bad quality to have to at least be able to distinguish between, well, maybe not so much me and not me, but uh, sort of like the people who are providing to me and the people who are not providing to me. You know, um, I could imagine that being uh, an evolutionary quality that's necessary. But, you know, as to when this this develops, this idea of like separating the self from others and the self from the future self, that, that to me is a fascinating open question um, that I don't really know the answer to, um, and I'm not sure others do as well. Right. So, um, yeah, I'll kind of, I'll, let's, let's get into the, the basics. I have all these questions about like, yeah. you know, yeah. like time. I read this book, I think it was in the early nineties that I was found really fascinating called the geography of time. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. I've got it right here in my office. Uh, Robert Levine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, it looked at, um, you know, basically different mores and approaches and, and really mindsets about time around the world and how different they are and how, yeah. you know, so, and, and so much of like psychology research is done on, you know, U.S. undergrads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so, so that, you know, like there are, there are languages that have different tenses, that we do. So like, yep. what, what are there some sort of universal, basic, common understandings about time that mm. that people share? Oh, man, that is such an interesting question. You know, so I think, I, you know, I, I, the stuff you're referencing there is, is fascinating work. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> the, the, the what we know at this point is, first off, there's different languages around the world. I think you're just referencing that. And that's actually from a colleague of mine, Keith Chen here at UCLA's uh, business school, um, that, you know, that, that work suggests that, um, uh, the, the way that people speak about time actually changes the way that they think about time. So that, you know, there's some languages that have a strong division between the present and the future. So English is one of those languages, right? Um, where, we are very clear when something's happening in the future, we change the verb, we change the words around it. Um, but there are other languages where the, we talk about the present and we talk about the future in similar ways. So German is a, a language like that. Um, and, and that also suggests that the, the speakers of, of these different languages have different ways of thinking about how separate the present is from the future and how much one blends into the other. Mm. Um, so, and, you know, and, and then there's, there's other, um, other really interesting cultural findings that suggest that, you know, whereas uh, y- you and I probably very sort of, you know, 
almost innately think about the past flowing into the future, call it from, you know, left to right, like if you were to draw this out, <laughs> um, you know, speakers of other languages that are not read left to right, like Hebrew, uh, think about it actually flowing in a different direction, or um, a Mandarin, which might go uh, up and down, you know, they think about it not left to right, but up and down, and so there are, I think there are fascinating differences between the way that time is encoded around the world, which is to some extent tied to language. Uh, Keith Chen, that's the guy here, and Lara Boroditsky, who's at UC San Diego, do some fascinating work in that topic. So to, so to be able to speak to commonalities across cultures around the world, you know, man, that is, that's a really interesting question. It's a tough one. I mean, it's something I'd love to look at. Well, you know, we sort of started with, you got to start somewhere. And we started with the U.S. population. I would you know, I'll note that we sort of expanded beyond undergrads, but, you know, you start there, too, because they're easier to get, right? Yep. Um, but, you know, we, we sort of started with a very real policy problem of retirement savings and healthy eating, both of which are huge problems in a U.S.-based population. But, you know, were I to be based in Australia, where there's um, very high saving rates as a function of government pensions. I, I, I don't think it, it would be, that would not be the sort of driving issue that would, that would motivate the research. You know, so I think there's um, different ways to think about these questions as they apply around the world. But um, as to the universalities of time perception, oof, that's a tough one, <laughs> but I like it. <laughs> or, or maybe, I mean, I guess what, what I'm thinking is someone, like yeah. I, I come at this from someone who's trying to help people eat healthier, exercise sure. more, live better, you know, not so much the financial, but the sort of lifestyle aspects yep. of, yep. of that. And I, th and I think, you know, so what you said about people who speak Hebrew thinking about time flowing from right to left or Mandarin from, from you know, down to up or up to down, lets me think that, that maybe language is a really key lever like a, an interventional tool because it's not just how how time gets encoded in language but it seems like language is sort of like a trend that, that language is how we translate time i i think that's a very good interpretation of it. i think that's exactly right um and you know i think that um you know there's there's sort of subtle tricks there where you know there's there's some very interesting work around you know, language and motivation and time. Um, there's a, a colleague of mine, uh, a friend of mine named Chris Bryan, who does some really interesting work that looks at, you know, when we talk about an action, whether we talk about it in a verb form or a noun form. So if I say something like, um, I eat healthy versus I'm a healthy eater, hmm. those are those are, you know, they, they essentially mean the same thing, but the healthy eater, that's the noun form, that then ties into my identity um, and uh, is wrapped up into, you know, sort of every aspect of my being, whereas I eat healthy, that's a verb, it's not really linked to my identity, that's kind of more about, um, well, I occasionally eat healthy, I occasionally don't, and so he's found in, in voting context and cheating context, if you say things like, you know, I'm a voter versus I vote, you see differential effects on people's behavior. And so you can, you can think about these sorts of things applied to the, the domain of 
of time and motivation, healthy eating, et cetera, and how, how they might matter there too. And again, that's a subtle, subtle language difference that, that really could, uh, you know, affect behavior. Yeah. So there, there's, I'm just making a little note about what I want to come back to, but I feel like uh, sure. we've, we've, I've led you off into the, into the weeds vis-a-vis -vis my listeners who still don't exactly know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no. That's fine. <laughs> so so I, want to, I want to sort of bring it back to the basics because I'm just so fascinated to uh, – because I feel like we've had this conversation because I've listened to your interview with Peter so many times. <laughs> you know, it's like the um, – you know, like – you meet the celebrity and you know all about them. Like, so, so let's. Uh, <laughs> so the the idea is that we have yeah. this. Um, the, we we all have presumably a future self as long as we have a future, and the to the extent to which we see this, or our brain perceives the future self as a different person or less us or less like top of mind the way like in the moment, like my entire brain is just going like, gimme, 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 what can I get here? For me, right. like, right. I don't have that same relationship with the future self. And so as, as a result, we end up satisfying the needs of the, the immediate present self. So, you know, giving into temptation and we don't do things like save or eat healthy. So what was, what was, what was the, right. the, um, I mean, see, it seems kind of obvious, <laughs> When when you when you think about it that way, so what was the what was the research questions that you followed to kind of tease that out and find sort of you know useful information and useful interventions around it? That's that's great. Um, you know, I, I think you're right, right? So when you say it, sort of like, well, it's um, this trade off between the present self and the and the future self, and I agree. It, you know, it does make kind of it makes sense. Um, what we wanted to, you know, so our, our first research question was, um, could, could, the, could the way that people think about the future self, that is, let me, let me put that a different way, um, how connected they are to them, how similar they feel to that future self, how sort of emotionally bonded they feel with that future self, if that makes sense. Um, what we wanted to first know is, could that relationship um, be related to or, or be linked to the types of decisions people make in terms of trading off smaller rewards now against larger rewards later, which is sort of at the crux of these types of issues that we're talking about. Um, but, but really what we wanted to see was, could, could that relationship explain our behavior above and beyond other sort of standard things like, you know, how much education do we have? How old are we? Uh, um, how much do we make per year, et cetera? And so, you know, the idea is if our relationship with our future self could explain our decisions over time, but it couldn't explain those decisions any better than anything else, then it's not really that worthwhile to study because you might as well go for something easier. But if, you know, if this relationship to our future selves could account for some explanatory power in our decisions over time, then that suggests that maybe that's a lever we could push and pull to get people to make decisions that fall more in line with the things that they say they want to do. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So whether, whether it's, whether you could actually change, their behavior by getting by changing their relationship to their future self. Exactly, exactly, and that's exactly right. And so you know to say, 
you know, look, there's all sorts of things that we've tried to do from an intervention standpoint to get people to say, save more, eat healthier, not smoke, et cetera. And, you know, I guess at the very basic level, what we're trying to say is, could this be another route that is worth exploring? Uh, could, could trying to get people to consider their future selves and think about their relationship with those future selves in a deeper way, could that be a route that's worth exploring it? And that, that essentially, uh, that essentially is, is, was the, the starting point for our approach here. Gotcha. So what, what, what was the first experiment that you did that led you to think that like, I've got something here. This is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, the first one that we did was actually the, the neuroscience one that we were talking about earlier, um, which, you know, in retrospect was maybe an f- ambitious way to start, but, you know, you never can sort of predict how these things take off. And, and I, you know, I think at the time I was in a class where I had to propose a neuroscience project, and that seemed like a fun one. And I was lucky enough to have a supportive mentoring uh, team uh, who encouraged you know me and my colleagues to take that question on, and so that the first the first study that we really looked at was saying okay what what happens in the brain when people think about themselves in the future and 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 could we use that neural activity uh, to predict the decisions people make, and so you know what we had done is we said well does the future self essentially, you know, quote unquote, look like another person in the brain? And the, does the extent to which it looks like another person, is that predictive of these sorts of trade-off decisions that people make? So in that particular study, we gave people these choices between rewards that they could get right now that were small in nature versus rewards that they would have to wait for uh, but that were larger, uh, which to me is like the, the, the you know, a, a good representation of saving for the future or eating healthy, all these things. It's like, well, I could, I could take a smaller amount of money now and buy something, or I could wait over time and let that money grow. Or I could, you know, I could eat, uh, you know, a, a donut right now and that's rewarding, or I could wait over time and, you know, be much healthier. Right. And so what we found is that the, the more people, thought about the future self as another person, the more it sort of looked like a dissimilar other in the brain, if we can say that, the more impatient people were in these decisions that they were making that traded off these current rewards versus the future rewards. Um, so, so in other words, you know, the, the, the sort of basic idea there was that, look, if there is that separation between the current self and the future self, um, that was at least predictive of the types of decisions that people make when they were trading off rewards now versus rewards later. And, and you know, we followed it up with a very like basic pen and paper survey where we asked people just to tell us, you know, how similar and emotionally connected do you feel to your future self? And we gave them kind of a visual scale. It was like a series of overlapping circles where we just said, you know, which group of circles in terms of their overlap best represents how you feel about your future self. And we use those answers to then predict, again, these decisions on these uh, trade-off tasks. We use 
the answers on the circles measure to predict um, how much money people had accrued over time. So what their what their assets were over time. Uh, and again, what we found is that you know the closer people felt to their future selves, uh, the more they had saved over time, the more patient they were on these laboratory tasks, uh, et cetera. So that that was kind of the starting point for us, if that makes sense. Yeah. So so. Are you saying that if you looked at someone's paper and pen survey about which set of overlapping circles they chose, that you would then be, have a predictive um, a sense of what their brain would activity would look like and vice versa? That there was a, Well, that's a, a good question. Um, so I can't go that quite that far because what we never did was say use their pen and paper responses on their, uh, you know, to say what their future selves were like and map that onto the brain activity. Um you know, what we, what we did is say, let's take the brain activity and use that to predict how patient people were on these financial tasks. Um, gotcha. But what you're asking is slightly different, but I just want to make sure I don't, you know, overstep <laughs> what we did, but, but it's a great question. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, from there, the question is really, you know, there's sort of deep questions of where does this come from? Where does this tendency to see the future self as another person come from? Which is, uh, you know, sort of what you were getting at earlier with the evolutionary question, right? And so then you say, you know, what's the what's the origin of this sort of uh, propensity to see our future selves as other uh, as another person? And then we also say, how can we change the state of affairs by making people feel closer to their future selves in an effort to get them to make better decisions. Right. Uh, so so and, when, and, I, when, I, yeah. when I hear that, I mean, so again, you know, I've been like steeped in the evolutionary biology. Um, so I'm, I'm hearing little, little echoes in my brain saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe the whole thing is that there is, there is no innate concept of future self. Like that's just something that, that we've made up, hmm. you know, recently and <laughs> and that any you know, that any animal in its natural environment is just following algorithms that are designed to get to you know re survival and reproduction and so and so the problem is not the the future self concept but right. we're in this within this really mismatched environment in which the yep. things we would normally do like oh look calories <laughs> like, yep. like, like eating huge amounts of calories made perfect sense for your future self if you were in, you know, a Stone Age famine. Oh, oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, the statistic is that, you know, I think it's more years have been added on the average life expectancy in the last 120 years or so than in all of the previous millennia combined. Um, you know, and so you think about that, I think what that suggests is that Basically, from an evolutionary standpoint, in the blink of an eye, we have drastically increased how long people live on average. And so when people were used to living to 40 or 35 or something like that, the idea of being able to sock away things for later or deeply consider the golden years of retirement was... A completely foreign and I mean, to some extent, it would have been irrational, right? To say, well, 
don't live for today, live for tomorrow. You know, who knows? It, well, no, I know I'm going to live to 30 and then die because that's what happens, right? And so to all of a sudden have this extra time um, that hadn't previously been accounted for, I think, what, I think what you said is a really good way to put it. It creates somewhat of a mismatch environment where we're sort of evolutionarily primed to do the things that will matter for us right now and in the very short term, when in reality, you know, in order to sort of have a healthy, productive, long life, we shouldn't be thinking that way, or we should be thinking less that way, right? And I, I think that's a really, a really deep insight that, that you're raising there. Well, so, so then, you know, you've got, you've got these neural images, which, which when, I, when I first heard about it, it's like, some part of me was like, oh, that's so sexy. That you can actually, you know, that this isn't just sort of like philosophy or theory that's like, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, the brain says so. We've got, we've got imaging. And, of course, I think there's, you know, there's a danger with that, too. Like, if, you know, if, yeah. if all of a sudden you could, someone would come out with a 399 iPhone app that would allow you to image your brain, then half of the people would, would see themselves on the more dissociated half of the bell curve and say, well, that explains why. Yeah, yeah. I can't, you know, so is... Do you, I think, well, what you're raising is a fat, you know, this is a fascinating conversation because first off, the couple of things there jumped out. One is that, you know, I think you're right. Right. So anytime you throw a brain image onto something, you know, it, it seems sexier. And in fact, there's some really interesting research suggesting that people are more likely to believe the exact same research finding if you pair it with a, a picture of a brain than if you don't, because it's just like, well, it must be, you know, well, it must be real. It must be happening on a biological level. Um, and so I think, you know, as consumers of research, you know, we have to be very careful to try to understand what's happening, what the study was, um, and what the, you know, what the neuroscience is sort of is saying. Uh, but beyond that, you know, you're raising this other point of, taking a kind of reductionistic approach to behavior of saying, you know, if, if I say, oh, look at that, my brain looks like that, that explains everything. Well, that's a really weird notion of, I mean, it really sort of robs people of their agency um, and, you know, sets up one of these, you know, sort of sci-fi scenarios of predetermination and are we are we destined to act a certain way you know do, do the you know quote unquote do the brains of killers look different than the brains of non-killers etc and are you you know destined to do that and the, you know the reality is of course i think that there's you know we have some agency over our decisions and we 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 do control impulses and we do exert uh willpower and self-control um at times in our lives and so um you know, if you couple that notion with the idea that there's also a concept of brain plasticity, the idea that, or maybe I should say phenomenon rather than concept, but the idea that the brain can change over time and new connections are constantly being made and formed and strengthened. Um, and, you know, what we haven't done, but what I would love to do is to say, you know, if we could, if we could somehow have an intervention that makes people feel closer to their future selves, more connected to their future selves, would we see the effects of such an intervention 
on a neural level as well. You know, I think to me that would be a fascinating thing to do and (laughs) someone's got to give me some money to do it because it would be an expensive study, you know, but... Um, uh, well, we'll, we'll, crowds, we'll crowdsource it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thanks very much. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes me think of, I don't know if he's your, your colleague, Jeffrey Schwartz. Uh, no, no, who, no. Who wrote uh, the, the Mind and the Brain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, know, I, know, I, I haven't read the book, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But I mean, he, you know, he talks about this idea that the mind can change the brain. And right. he, he uses his own example of, um, you know, seeing these destructive neural circuits around certain parts of the brain related to uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And by training people to recognize that these impulses to, to wash or count tiles or whatever are faulty signals from the brain, not only do they get some freedom from it, but in, in subsequent neural imaging, those circuits are damped down. They're, they're, yeah. you know, the, the, he, that the mind can actually affect the molecules and the neurons and the synapses and the atoms in the living tissue. Yeah, it's fascinating work. You're right. I forgot. He is at uh, he's at UCLA. You're right. He's at the med school here. Um, it's fascinating work, um, and I think that that is you know there, there's something hopeful about that, and in almost the op- opposite of these reductionistic ways of thinking about um, ourselves and our biology, if you will. Um, but you know. When it when it comes to at least thinking about the self over time, you know we haven't done the research necessary to say an intervention of a given form could actually change the way that not only we think about the future self but the way that the brain encodes the future self. And I think that would be a fa- it's a fascinating study to think about. Right, but you have done studies where you've looked at interventions on and their effects on on behavior, right, on the stuff that that normal people care about. Like, are they going to have enough money when they retire? Are they, are they going to be morbidly obese at age 60? That sort of thing, right? That's right. You know, so we've, we've done a variety of studies that look at these interventions, you know, one of which we, uh, one sort of set of interventions has, has um, shown people age progressed images of themselves and looked at how that affects their financial decisions, um, ethical decisions, um, we're currently looking at this in a, in a weight loss uh, domain. Um, and we've also run out where we have people write letters to their future selves. Very, very low tech. But, um, but I think sort of harkens back to what you were saying earlier that, you know, the future self to some extent is a, you know, a construction of late. And, and I think that's exactly the idea that it's something that we're kind of not really used to thinking about. And so just getting people to sit down and put pen to paper and say, you know, dear future self, what will, you know, what's my life like now? What will my life be like in the future? Uh, it, it's an exercise that kind of prompts people to at least start considering that there's another person on the other side of the divide between now and the future. So what, what, have, what have you found when you have people write the letter or look at the age-progressed image? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, this is, I would say, even though we've been doing it for a couple of years, you know, the, the work is still in its infancy and in that we're still trying to find natural field settings where we can test, this, test these ideas in. But, you know, the, the basic idea is what, you know, what we found is that showing people these age-progressed images has at least made them more willing to 
save for the future, whether it's more willing to increase their 401k contribution in a hypothetical scenario or more willing to allocate more money to a long-term savings fund. Um, we've also found in the sort of ethical domain, we ran a study with um, teenagers in the Netherlands who, uh, you know, one group of them, basically, they, you know, we had, we had a, a bunch of these high school students and we created a, a new Facebook friend for them and half of them became friends with a, a version of themselves today. It was sort of like they had to, you know, talk to themselves. And another half of them became Facebook friends with an older version of themselves. So they, they actually, you know, we created this profile where they had this, you know, older future self in there. Um, and we tracked them for a week and we looked at their propensity to engage in sort of unethical behavior. So this is, or delinquent behavior. So, you know, I'm not talking about uh, selling you know, large quantities of drugs or murdering people when I'm talking about things like cheating on a test or shoplifting or, or sort of, you know, smaller crimes of, you know, well, crimes or, or at least unethical things. And, you know, and we found that the students who had seen and been become friends with their future selves were more likely to act in these, you know, call it more ethical ways, more long-term, long-term oriented uh, ways, uh, you know, that, and that, that's a real behavior, uh, situation, which, which I really, really liked. I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I was saying that's a real behavior that I, that I think is meaningful. And so we're, we're, we're following this work up by looking at other, other scenarios and other domains and other, you know, what we call moderators, you know, so, Right now, we're looking at this in a, a weight loss scenario where we're showing people images of themselves in the future, um, changing weight as a function of, of behavior. And, and one of the questions we're asking is, does it matter how 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 healthy you are right now? You know, I, I'm not sure that we would expect an intervention that makes you look a little bit thinner to really matter to someone who's already pretty fit. Um, but if you are overweight or obese, um, then you might see more of an effect on intentions and behaviors um, as a result of these sorts of interventions. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, one, one of the things I do is I work with people who are overweight and obese. And right. I've got, you know, you, if you, you're probably familiar with some of the data from the National Weight Control Registry. And, you know, just how unlikely it is for anyone to lose even 5% of their body weight and keep it off for even, so tough. even two years. And, you know, in my community, the uh, sort of plant-based community where people are reading, eating a, a, a really ideal optimal diet, and then we get yep. them exercising. Like, I've got a bunch of friends who have, have all lost 200 pounds or more. Oh, my gosh. And. Wow. And they're, you know, so I'll, I'll get there before and after pictures and I'll give a lecture and I'll put it up there. And, you know, they're, they're extremely inspiring. But one of the things that, that my friends who are, you know, who have, uh, who are these people have to constantly tell other people is I'm not special. I'm not, I'm not amazing. I didn't do anything you couldn't do. And, you know, to be able to then take a picture of someone who's 430 pounds and show them what they would look like. You know, it's, it like feels ten times more powerful than showing them this uh, this sort of you know bevy of of uh, you know transformation that that I'm using now. 
Yeah, I, and I think, I mean, I, I guess my response would be that there's, there's probably um, a mixture of interventions that, that would work, you know? And so one of the things we don't know is who responds better to what sort of intervention, right? Because I can imagine some of the stuff that you're talking about and doing um, could be, um, you know, quite useful to some people. And I could imagine that uh, a more image-based intervention like what I'm talking about could be useful to another type of group of people. And trying to figure out who responds better to what is is a task for future researchers or current uh, to, un, you know, uncover. Right. And I guess another thing is that some of the people I've talked to who have gone on these tremendous journeys say now that if you had told them when they started where they'd be now, they would have quit because it would have seemed too unbelievable. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, when you then, when you then have the, this unrealistic contrast, I think, you know, that can be almost unmotivating for people or you, you know, or you can even think about that, uh, in another context where you say something like saving small amounts of money right now will eventually get you to your goal. Well, it's like if I see that, you know, I put in $10 this month and my goal is to save a hundred thousand, you know, it's like, Oh God, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's just a drop in the bucket and it's not doing anything. And it's easy to just kind of drop out, you know? Um, but I'd say that, um, you know, helping people sort of see the path or at least stay focused on how what they're doing right now is is continuing them on that path that's where you you might see a real effect on you know a positive effect on behavior right do, do you distinguish between sort of the ongoing behaviors right the don't eat the cheeseburger mm-hmm. versus the the one time yeah. Um, you know, allocate more to your 401k. Is it, it seems like it would be easier to sort of hit people up strategically with a poignant picture of their future self and then have them do one thing that locks it in. I, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, we, we've distinguished between those, but not in a sort of rigorous way where we can say, look, interventions work better in this context and not that context. And I think the the issue that you're bringing up is that, say, with the 401k decision, um, to some extent, that is a one shot decision, right? So I go in, I, you know, I start my new job or it's my open enrollment period. I make my choice and, and I don't normally change it because people are so, you know, inherently, um, you know, they're just not. They're, they're slightly lazy and not motivated to get in there and deal with their finances. And so I think the median number of changes that people make to their retirement accounts is zero because it's like you, you make your election and then you let it go. But with eating, I mean, this is a decision we make multiple times a day, right? And so to constant, you know, if I were to show you an image of yourself in the future, every time you made an eating decision, I'm not sure that that would really be, you know, I think over time you would end up kind of uh, immune to it, you know, or you you would become what we call habituated to it. So I think you could still consider, though, the relevance of these types of interventions in a health domain, not in terms of the everyday behavior, but in terms of the signing you up to come to the table and, you know, enroll in a program or, 
uh, enroll in a diet or whatever it is to start that process. That that might be where these sorts of interventions matter more or are at least more effective. But that you know that's a speculation and something that we're still trying to figure out how to how to discuss in the literature and how to write about. Right. It suddenly occurred to me that maybe another form of that is what you were talking about at the at the top of the call uh, around the difference between uh, eating and being an eater. That if if you can use future self to get someone to kind of jiggle and then refix their self identity, that 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 could have sort of cascading long term. Absolutely, I think that's absolutely right. And I, you know, I mean, it's again, you know, not something that we've investigated yet, but something I think would be really interesting to investigate. I think it's a great it's a great call. Cool. So um, now we now we've got two crowdsource studies to work on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think as you're, you know, as you're pointing to, there's, there's a lot of future directions from this, for this work. Um, and I think it's made a lot of good progress so far to say, you know, this is another way of looking at how and why people fail to make decisions that fall in line with the things that they say they want to do. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot left to be done to figure out kind of what situations matter, where we, where might we have more lift from these interventions and and not and 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 who might be more or less affected by these sorts of interventions because I think you know that to me is the uh, the really difficult sort of policy uh, prescription to understand because you know I would never go out and say here's a way to affect behavior across the board, show everybody an image of themselves in the future or, or anything else because people are different and people are individuals and people respond differently to different types of messages. And I think we need to just figure out what segments respond better to one sort of message than another. And, you know, that can really, that I, I think can really help us help people make better decisions over time. Right. I think that's 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 so much of a, of a more utopian future than like I, I was starting to fantasize about like the future self pill. <laughs> like you figure out how to how to give give someone a, a you know a psychoactive drug that that fires up all their future self uh, connection. Um, you know, you, you joke or maybe not, but I mean, look, you know, there's some really interesting research coming out right now on the on the beneficial use of uh, of of mushrooms, of, you know, psilocybin. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the things that we know that they do from previous research is they help sort of break down boundaries, psychological boundaries. And so, you know, could you, you know, could you have people take a dose and, and have an easier time stepping into the minds of their future selves and even the minds of others, you know? And I think that's, that's, it seems futuristic, but then again, who knows? Um, Futuristic or 10,000 years old. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's right. I mean, not, not that I know anyone who's done magic mushrooms or, or ayahuasca, but I've heard <laughs> that. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> that, you know, like, um, you know, people often sort of fast forward their lives to the moment of their death. Yes. And I know, yes. that, you know, and sort of like the, you know, the Tibetan culture, there's a, you know, the whole Grateful Dead thing that was, you know, your, the purpose of your life is to be at peace at the moment of your death. That, that there, I guess there are cultures that think about their deaths a lot, which is, a, I guess, a form of your future self or, or non-self. Uh, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it's a, 
I just actually wrote a chapter with a colleague of mine, Dan Bartels, and we were sort of trying to put out some of the things that we think would be interesting in the future. And one of them is exactly what you're talking about. You know, the, the you know, death is a form of future self, but not, um, but it kind of breaks down, you know, it depends on do we see the self as a entity that exists after death, et cetera. And I, I don't think this is just a theoretical question because so many important end of life policy decisions rely on people having to think about dying, which is something that most people shy away from. And, you know, there is a lot of um, behaviors and uh, relationships that would be improved if people could sit down and decide on an end of life plan, decide on a will, decide on um, whether they're going to buy a longevity annuity, you know, all of these sorts of things. Um, that to some extent involve projecting oneself forward to either the time of death or or after death and what will happen to my loved ones. And, you know, I think these are, to me, that's sort of the next frontier of questions that I, that I think are important to ask, both from a theoretical standpoint and from a, a research perspective, a, a practical, um, practical research and practical policy perspective. That's so interesting because er earlier in the year I attended a workshop with a I guess I'd call him a, a sort of shaman from uh, from Canada, Stephen Jenkinson, who wrote a book okay. called Die Wise. And, you know, he's sort of, you know, all he says, like, Western civilization, we are basically a death-denying culture. And because we're so scared of death, we've, we've created all these forms of, like, death within life. We, you know, we destroy the environment. We are terrible to each other. The, you know, it says that, that healthy societies have a healthy regard for death and a consciousness of it. I couldn't agree more. You know, and I think that's that. You know, it also stems. Hit. You know, it's sorry. It's also related to other other sorts of decisions in society where um, a healthy regard toward death may also be related toward a healthy regard toward the elderly. Um, and you know, a healthy regard to the elderly might be related to our healthy approach to retirement and other old age issues. You know, I think these things are our cousins, if not siblings, and, and need to be treated as such. Hmm. Wow, this is such a, a deep field. So one, one more little set of questions, which is, so I started thinking about sort of future self, not in those terms, but um, upon reading a, a, a primer on um Behavioral Economics um, yeah. by a guy named Bob Neese. It's called The Power of 50 Bits. And he talks a lot about hyperbolic discounting. Yep. Which, yeah. which essentially is what you're talking about, that we would rather have something now than a much better something in the future. Mm -hmm. And when I read that chapter on hyperbolic discounting, I kind of despaired because it seems like the math was just so badly against us. It's like you know going to Las Vegas and uh, you know, to a really crooked casino, like there's really no <laughs> reasonable chance. And so, so I, so I looked around and I found a concept um, put forth by Dan Ariely at Duke mm -hmm. of benign masochism. And the, and the, and the way I understand it is sort of, you take pleasure in your current pain. So instead of saying, I'm going to work out like a, like an MF because I want to be ripped in six months or two years, or I'm going to eat like crazy, you know, I'm going to eat really healthy so I can be, you know, dancing at my grandchildren's wedding when I'm 70, that you actually try to take pleasure in 
your self-denial right now. And I'm wondering if you have any, any thoughts or, you know, research. On I, that. Yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating, I mean, Dan is a, one of the most creative, fascinating guys I know. And, um, you know, the, the concept I think is related to a couple of other ones. One of which is the idea that we, um, might be better off dealing with negative emotions and negative events in our lives if we are to couple them with positive things. So, um, uh, you know, trying to essentially confront the negative uh, alongside something positive. So we can reward ourselves. Uh, you know, we can work out. Um, and like you said, we can do it because it's going to be, um, uh, you know, make us ripped in the future. Or we can work out because when we go to the gym, we get to watch an episode of Narcos on Netflix while we're on the elliptical. And so we're taking some pleasure while we work out and it's coupling, uh, you know, something positive with something slightly negative. That's some work by Katie Milkman from Wharton. Um, and I think what Dan's talking about is something a little bit different, which is it's almost a meta awareness of the pain of doing something and, and sort of reveling in that. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's getting pleasure and saving for the future because saving for the future might be something that's good to do or get, or, you know, getting pleasure in working out because working out is something that's good to do. Um, it's a, it's a mindset shift that I think is difficult to implement, but nonetheless could be a useful thing to do. Um, but, but I do feel like it falls under this broader class of, of interventions and decisions that, in, that sort of asks people to couple positive with negative. Right. So is that is that what you were writing about in the in your 2013 paper when bad can be good? Uh, yeah, actually, that's right. Um, we were, you know, I have a couple papers where we looked at um, what happens when people are prone to experience the positive alongside the negative. Um, and, uh, you know, in that particular instantiation, we looked at the propensity to experience mixed emotions. Um and, and the, the, the idea there was that being able to experience the negative alongside the positive would be related to improved mental health over time and um, to a better physical health and at least attenuated decreases in physical health. In, in other words, suggesting everybody's health declines over time but could we sort of reduce that decline if over time people are more likely to experience negative stressful events in the face of positive ones as well? Um, and so that's what we looked at in those papers there. But yeah, that's, a, but that, that's exactly right. That's where I was sort of going with that, that interpretation there. It's beautiful, too, because, you know, there's so much sort of pop psychology around just, you know, affirmations, be happy, focus on the positive. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it, does, it doesn't seem to be very realistic when you look at sort of, you know, a happy, successful aging populations around the globe. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're not denying the pain and suffering and sadness of life. That's right. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, well, this has been a real pleasure, Howard. It's, it's such an interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm so I'm so grateful for you to take the time, and I you know there's there's I can't wait you know I'm following your research career. I find you know your the questions you're asking, and the ways you're asking them to be 
so creative and magical. You know, I've I've been following Dan Ariely's work for a long time, and I'm you know I'm just blown away by his ability to ask really interesting questions and figure out how to ask them in the world. And I feel the same way about about your work. And I'm so I'm so grateful for it, and so happy that you took the time today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and uh, I really appreciate you reaching out. Hopefully, we'll. Uh, We'll, we'll cross paths again and stay in touch in the future. Well, my future self is counting on it. <laughs> and mine as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Hal. Take care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to the studies we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 191. So this morning, I just finished an interview with Ellen Jaffe Jones, veg coach, author of Vegan Fitness for Mortals, Paleo Vegan, and Vegan on $4 a Day. And she wanted me to let you know that she is doing Facebook Live cooking demonstrations in January focusing on weight loss, healthy eating and weight loss. And those are at Wednesdays at 3 p.m. And you can find her on Facebook at Ellen Jaffe, J-A-F-F-E-E Jones. Um, you can also go to facebook.com slash vegcoach and you can see what she's up to. And she will be on this podcast in about a month. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 190 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com, which is Plant Yourself Podcast Central. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter. You'll get notifications about shows. You'll get uh, articles that I write, other cool stuff. So let's talk about money for a minute. Those of you who've been longtime listeners to the show know that this is self-funded. I don't take advertising. I don't do joint venture deals with my guests whereby I get some money if you go buy their stuff. Um, Basically, I fund it through everything else I do in the world and by donations. I have some very loyal fans who give me money every month through Patreon or through PayPal. A bunch of other people send one-time donations either digitally or by mail sometimes. And I also occasionally promote things that I'm doing in the world that I think you'd be interested in, especially the Big Change Program and other courses that I teach. And maybe I'm being a little bit too purist about this, but I've never had any interest in getting sponsors. You know, maybe some company like Vitamix came along and said, we'd like to sponsor you or Instant Pot or someone where, you know, I totally wholeheartedly use and recommend the products. You know, even Vitamix, like I'm getting away from smoothies, doing less and less of that. And I wonder, what if I am sponsored by Instant Pot and I'm leaning on them and all of a sudden I decide I want to go raw? Am I going to be able to have the guts to do it? when my sponsor is Instant Pot. But when I listen to other podcasts that I like, I really enjoy the part where the podcaster promotes some product that's sponsoring the show. So I'd like to do that too. But my products are all going to be made up, so I hope you'll bear with me. Today's show is sponsored by The Tantable. Research out of Cornell from Dr. Brian Wansink suggests that the size of the bowl or plate or utensil that we use while we eat will determine how much we eat. Therefore, I've invented the Tanta Bowl. It's a soup bowl with little holes in it. You put your soup in there and it disappears before you can get too full. You can find out more at tantabowl.com. Today's episode is also sponsored by the Schnoz Hoover. The Schnoz Hoover is the world's first portable battery-operated 
vacuum cleaner for your nose. That's right, no more squeezing, no more poking, no more scrubbing. Three quick passes with the Schnoz Hoover and you're good to go. That was kind of fun. Seriously now, thanks to the real Plant Yourself podcast patrons, Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Alan Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, <gasps> Jen Velkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, and Tom Franzak for your generous support of the podcast. Thanks also to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's beautiful music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And if you would like to support the show, you can, of course, share this and other episodes on social media via email. You can write that review on iTunes, pretty please, that helps so much. And you can become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing gift to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, I have to admit to of being a bit lazy and unfocused, and we have crop covers over our produce, so I haven't been going out as much. We've got some beautiful kale and mustard greens, and I've been relying on stuff from the freezer and the fridge, so uh, I'm going to use this as a reminder to get me out to that backyard this afternoon, pick some greens, and put them in all the dishes we cook over the next couple of days. In running news, everything's going pretty good. I had a terrible run on Sunday. I was supposed to do eight one-mile at 7.30 pace, which is a little bit faster. Well, it's a lot faster than my marathon pace. I managed to get five miles in, and then I just didn't have anything else. And I, even when I was trying, I was at eight and a half, nine miles. So something just gave out. And it's interesting because this was really the very, very first, you want to call it, failed workout where I just couldn't do the thing that I'd set out to do. So instead, I just, <laughs> luckily, I'd run the first uh, six miles out, so I had to come all the way back. So I ended up doing about 14 miles. Um, it was wet, it was raining, it was cold. I was wearing sweats that were kind of clingy, but none of those really make sense to me. So I have to start asking people who've been doing this for a while, what, ha- what do you do, what happens, what does it mean when you have a workout that you just can't complete? If you have th- thoughts or ideas about that, uh, Please feel free to share them in the comment section of today's show, plantyourself.com slash 191. I'll say it one more time. The Big Change program is leaving the station on January 14th. If you're interested, don't let it leave without you. It's really good. I haven't been good about collecting testimonials yet because, you know, we're only halfway through the first one. We're, We're not quite six months in, and I'm reluctant to have people tell me how great it is when they haven't gone through the whole thing. But people do really appreciate the the group and Josh and the structure and the way it's so supportive and clear and giving people, really taking away hope and giving people control. Like people come in saying, I hope that I can change. And after a while, they realize how disempowering that language is and they just go do. And um, just as I was influenced and inspired and motivated and slapped upside the head by Josh Lajani, So now the Big Change program allows lots of people to have that same transformative experience and connection with him and with me. That's all for this week. As always, be well, my friends.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X. Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoraska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.